In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our gospel lessons from St. Matthew these past few weeks have been climbing us upward, like the first ascent of a roller coaster. The tension builds and builds, and it's leading us ever onward toward the crucifixion. In our lesson from this week, we are almost at the top of the summit, almost to the point where we can feel our stomachs drop out. Jesus has been engaged with the religious establishment in Jerusalem, and we've heard him offer up some difficult words. He's gone in and disrupted the orderliness of the temple commerce, casting out the merchants and money changers, throwing over tables in a veritable rage with the words of ancient prophecy on his lips. As he does so, the least, last, and lost come flocking to him, and he heals them. And the children are singing in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, and the religious leaders are indignant. And in their fear and anger, they seek a way to trap Jesus. In order to understand what's happening here, we need to put on our historical hats and set the stage before we circle back out to see how this text directs our lives now. First century Palestine was a tense place. The Jewish people had returned from their exile in Babylon under permission of the conquering Persian king Cyrus some centuries before. But though their geographic exile had come to an end, as Thomas Wolfe so aptly put it, you can't go home again. Life in the promised land never returned to normal. Israel was under the political thumb of one empire or another and was increasingly known as a troublemaking province, one that wouldn't adapt to the polytheistic pluralism that had served the Roman Caesars in so many other parts of their empire. As with so many revolutions before and since, the clearest way to the heart of the matter was to talk about taxation. The Jewish people were heavily taxed by a Rome which was itself onerous, but complicated by the pesky issue of the coinage with which the tax was to be paid. You see, since the days when the Mosaic Law was given, that is, since the birth of the nation of Israel and the charter of her national and religious life was written in the first five books of Scripture, the teaching of Moses, images were illicit. The commandments against graven images made it into the top ten, The problem being that Roman coinage, the coins that were required to pay Roman taxes, were all stamped with an image of Caesar Tiberius. As if this were not vile enough to the Jewish mindset, the inscription below this graven image stated, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Imagine, not only are you paying heavy taxes to an imperial overlord that you wish wasn't around, but you're doing so in a way that directly contravenes your core religious beliefs. To even have this money in your pocket was seen as a failure to maintain the Ten Commandments. This is why, in fact, there was such a thing as money changers at the temple to begin with. You couldn't buy animals for sacrifice with sacrilegious coinage. So there's a guy there who would give you an exchange rate for your Roman coins to get some non-idolatrous coins to shop with. Now, in a grossly overgeneralized way, the political factions at the time included the Herodians, who were, depending on who you asked, basically traitors, They were Jews who worked with the invading Romans and generally were wealthy and comfortable as a result of their efforts. On the other side of the spectrum was the Zealots, often living up in the hills, plotting revolutions, more often than not getting executed for their trouble. Then there's the religious establishment, which is itself further subdividable, but generally speaking, tried to stay above the fray and keep Torah in an attempt to usher in a new era for Israel. The Pharisee party would likely have much more sympathy for the Zealots, but they wouldn't be able to commit to revolution in the same public way. So when you read that the Herodians and the Pharisees joined together to try to trap Jesus, 
This is startling. Imagine the Democrats and Republicans of our nation working together on literally anything. It's that jaw-dropping. And the trap that they're setting for Jesus, in case it's not totally obvious, is that if Jesus says you should pay taxes, then he loses the support of the people and the more radical groups in their midst who may have been secretly hoping that he'd join them as a revolutionary leader. But if he says you should not pay the tax, then the Roman ears start to perk up. There have been guys in the recent past who have said such things, but Rome has learned that it's hard to talk when you're suffocating on a cross. Jesus' response gives us one of the most rhetorically brilliant moments of his public ministry. But his brilliance isn't just in the way he scoots out from under the trap they've set. A lot of politicians can do that. I've yet to hear a politician get asked a yes or no question and answer with a yes or a no. No, the brilliance is in the way that Jesus simultaneously disarms their trap while breaking open a deep and profound truth, which is something I've yet to see any politician do in my lifetime. The truth that Christ speaks to in his response reveals that this is actually a matter of icons and possession. He begins by revealing the hypocrisy of his interlocutors. Show me the coin for the tax, meaning, I don't have an idol in my pocket. Do you? And of course, they do. Do you see the irony of the uncreated word of God, through whom all things were made, holding between thumb and forefinger a symbol of bloated, blasphemous self-importance, a bit of brass claiming that Caesar is the worshipful son of God. When Jesus says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, he's using the word to give back, a little word that alone opens up for us the possibility of fruitful reflection on how those who would be faithful to God should understand their responsibilities to their fellow man within civil society. But in telling us to give back to Caesar what belongs to him, Jesus is also directly, though discreetly, delimiting Caesar's overbloated claims. Caesar has begun thinking of himself as divine, as deserving of worship, and the best that Caesar could come up with was to stamp his image, his icon, and some semi-precious pennies. All of our best and brightest warlords haven't come up with much better in the 2,000 years hence, it must be said. But the true God who has existed from eternity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in essence and undivided, through whom all things were made and by whom all things continue to exist, shows not even a hint of such knock-kneed weakness parading his power. When Caesar calls for light, he better hope there's a servant with a candle near to hand. When the triune God speaks, let there be light. He calls light into existence out of nothing. The Caesars combed the world for exotic animals seeking to prop up their own glory with a beauty they did not create. God spoke the peacock, the elephant, the Bengal tiger into being. Caesar had to find an artist, a mining operation, a mint, in order to etch his icon onto pocket change. The triune God spoke among himself and said, Let us make our icon. And he fashioned a living human being. The money that is in your pocket came to you by way of a government mint. Feel free to give it back. And by that I mean pay your taxes, take part in civic life, vote, participate, and be responsible for your fellow citizen. But do not confuse it for the thing itself. While our political celebrities wouldn't say that they should be worshipped, it is unavoidably clear that we have turned the political into a means of salvation, and we are watching it crumble under a weight it was never meant to bear. Give back to Caesar what belongs to him. You live here, now, 
So you've got to figure out how to be a good neighbor. But the only way any of us can figure out how to live here now is by giving back to God what belongs to God, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's everything. This is what we do in the Eucharist liturgy. We, the icons of God, are being returned to him as we offer ourselves up to him in a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, uniting ourselves to Christ in his death, being remade, refashioned into living, breathing icons of Jesus Christ, the King of all the universe. Amen.